We are on the eighth commandment today. And like the sixth and the seventh, it's just two little words today. Just two words. It couldn't be that big a deal. We may come to this commandment that's literally no steal. After the sixth that said you shall not murder, and after the seventh that says you shall not commit adultery, and we may approach the eighth, you shall not steal, and breathe a deep sigh of relief and say, okay, I know I get angry too much. I know I give in to lust too much, but I'm all right with this one. I'm just not a thief. I'm not a robber. I can take a break this Sunday. And in fact, in the early 90s, a Barner study revealed that 90% of evangelical Christians claim they never break this commandment. So that's pretty good. But we're going to study it anyway. Sometimes we don't see it, and sometimes, well, more often than not, we just kind of rationalize it. Or at least he who preaches to you today rationalizes it. It's just how things are done. It's not really any big deal. And everybody, that's the way society operates. When we lived in Peru, it, you know, sometimes when you're outside a culture and you go into a new culture, the sin patterns of that culture are more glaring to you. So in Peru, there was the whole bribery system, which was just terrible. And so you would get stopped by a police officer about 10 a.m. for some minor infraction that was very questionable. And what he really wanted was he was just a little hungry and he wanted a mid-morning snack. And we just called it the cevichito, a little ceviche, that fish, you know, that's cooked it. And all that, but we would buy that for him and it'd be okay. Or if you needed a document approved in some bureaucrat's office, it was just gonna stay in a stack until you slid a few soles, then amazingly, it got approved faster than you would have expected. But see, the issue wasn't as simple as just dishonest policemen and dishonest office workers, it was more crooked. We're kind of all complicit. The policemen and office workers weren't paid nearly enough to support their families, it was kind of understood they were gonna kind of augment their income. And you didn't want a serious traffic violation or you wanted to bump ahead in the line in the office work, so paying a little money was the least you could do for that. We're all kind of complicit in this system when we played into it. Growing up, we had Norman Rockwell prints. Some of you had Norman Rockwell prints in your house, and it's just this wonderful one. There's this sweet but wily middle-aged lady and there is this kind but profiteering butcher, and they're standing on either side of this hanging scale, and on the hanging scale is a chicken. And so the lady and the butcher are both looking up at the weight measurement, and that's what you capture first, but then you follow down and you see, you notice their hands, and the butcher has one little finger on the top of the scale pressing down, and this wily lady has one little finger below the scale pressing up. And you don't really know, as I look at it, and I've looked at it far too much this week, but as you look at it, you don't really know whether each thinks they're pulling the wool over the other's eyes, or whether the lady has gotten wise to the butcher, or whether each knows what the other's doing and they're just compensating for the respective polite, kind, civil sins of the Eighth Commandment. But it shows how common and acceptable, really, different forms of stealing are for us and for our culture, to the effect that Martin Luther, 
said about this commandment. If we look at mankind in all its conditions, it is nothing but a vast, wide, stable, full of great thieves. So there you have it. You're not in the 90% that thinks they never break it. So you and I need to consider this commandment a little more in depth. We're going to look at three points. What it forbids, what it fosters, and what it foreshadows. So what it forbids, what it fosters, and what it foreshadows. So what it forbids. And the Hebrew word is literally means to take something from its owner by stealth. To steal is to appropriate someone's property unlawfully. The prohibition is very comprehensive. It covers so much, especially the rule of Scripture. Remember, all of Scripture explains this command. It forbids stealing property and stealing people. It forbids dishonesty. So the eighth and the ninth go together. The eighth protects ourselves and our stuff from dishonesty, and the ninth protects our speech from dishonesty. So the Eighth Commandment assumes this right to private property. It upholds and safeguards the right to ownership. God thinks it's important. God has given you things. I mean, the very best illustration of this in Scripture is how dearly held for Israel was their little plot of land in the Promised Land. They loved that plot of land, and God gave it to them and assigned it to them. So when Acts uh, speaks of the early church, how they held all things in common, that does not mean that the church took possession of all their assets, that that was required. Rather, it means that believers were just so overcome by the abundance of grace in the cross of Christ that they just voluntarily, on their own account, liquidated even real estate and donated it to the church in order the church could help the poor. But it means that the right was theirs. It was theirs to do so. I like how the British preacher, Eric Alexander, summarizes three basic ways that you and I can come to possess property by law, by labor, and by love. We could also add a Calvinistic luck. Maybe just lucked out. But the basic ways are law, labor, and love. By law, we inherit or the government assigns some benefit. By labor, we work, buy it so that it's ours. By love, we receive a gift from somebody who just cares about us. Any other way we come to possess something is stealing. It's breaking the Eighth Commandment. So we can go through a host of civil laws. Um, I've tried to narrow my list to 12. Here we go. The civil law in Exodus 22, it's an important passage. It, it says various things. It says we can break it by breaking into someone's home and robbing them. If you're ever in doubt, that would be breaking this commandment. Don't do that. Uh, we can break it by stealing money or goods that someone asks us to keep safe for them. By rustling an ox or a donkey or a sheep. No cattle rustling. By putting your animals to graze on your neighbor's land. 
by letting fire, you start, get out of control so it burns up your neighbor's standing grain, like that negligence. By lending money to a down-and-out person at interest that doesn't forbid all interest expenses in business, but this down-and-out person just needs your help. The civil law in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 25 applies it this way, to merchants cheating customers with false weights and measures. Charging too much, not giving what you promise, and by not paying your employees on time. You could add James to this when he says, look, the folks that helped you harvest your grain, they're crying out to me because you hadn't paid them. Deuteronomy 19 and 27 applies this to moving the boundary marker on your neighbor's land. You're trying to annex their property and make it your own. Leviticus 25 and and Deuteronomy 15 applies this to relegating the poor to this, this underclass where they can't change. They can't rise out of it. So there are all these social laws for that. Deuteronomy 26 applies this to failing to give your tithes and offerings and first fruits to God, the priests, and the poor. And then Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 24 applies it to kidnapping people, making them a slave and selling them into slavery. And in fact, Israel is to be very sensitive to this Because you remember the prologue to the Ten Commandments. You were slaves in Egypt and I rescued you. You do not do that. It's breaking the Eighth Commandment. So how do we bring this to our realm? A host of different ways. I found a list of 101 ways that a restaurant and bar employee can steal from their proprietor or from the customer. Actually, a very interesting read, very creative in how they were doing it. Uh, Philip Ryken, the commentator, says, Employee theft of time and property costs American businesses and their investors more than $200 billion a year. And this affects us all as about a third of that cost gets passed on to the purchaser in cost of goods. It's a theft surcharge. Let's think of some ways. I don't know if this list necessarily touches but it's what I thought about. So let's think of a few. Uh, We're forbidden to borrow something and not take care of it, to to use company assets in a way that's not permitted us, to be negligent and damage someone else's property. We can't skim off the top or siphon off company supplies or borrow something indefinitely. We're never to take advantage of the poor and the weak, even if it's legal in what we do. We're banned from presenting something falsely for personal gain. Uh, Other passages speak of stealing the heart. I've been thinking through that this week. We we use that to say, he stole my heart or she stole my heart. A good thing. In Scripture, stealing the heart is duping somebody, tricking someone, being deceptive and manipulative. So you remember Absalom, you remember he, he, he like stands at the city gate and talks to everybody and tries to counsel them. 
And in that way, over a period of time, he steals the hearts of Israel. He has an agenda for them. And he presented himself one way and then came in a different way. We can do that financially. Um, We can work but not really be working. We can overcharge. We can build time in an incorrect way. I remember wrestling with that when I used to have to build time back in another life. Uh, We can edge someone out of something. I think of that land thing. Like somebody worked for a position, we just kind of edge them out. Uh, We we can advertise products in a grossly exaggerated way. I sold a car recently, and right when the purchaser was about to buy the product, I had this pang of conscience, and I started lowering the price. We, We can... We gotta watch out for that. We we can uh, the advertising industry creates a need and then promises you that their product is gonna meet that need to your heart's delight. We can misrepresent our financial status to affect various things, whether it be our taxes, whether it be a loan application. I mean. A business can do that. The government can misuse taxes. A bank can misrepresent things. But we can do that too. When we look at those big frauds in our society over the last 20 years and decry those, or we look at certain practices that led maybe to the bubble bursting in the housing market in 2008, we can decry those. But then we got to wonder, is my finger underneath the scale? In what way... In my capacity, am I also misrepresenting things? Maximizing expenses, minimizing income, however that works out. Uh, We're also prohibited from robbing people's freedom and dignity. And it really hits home at that point. I mean, there are various forms of slavery that plague, hurt people in our world. We fight against that. Uh, But we can fail to pay our employees adequately. We can malign someone's character, gossip about them. In Scripture, that's a big deal. Even sometimes even a bigger deal than stealing property is maligning character. We can discriminate against a person. We can just treat someone poorly. Another thing, in addition to that, we can plagiarize. You know, there's a big thing about preachers plagiarizing. I hope you know, hope I'm not doing that. Um, we can leak a secret. Uh, we can misuse information. One other thing I've been thinking of this week is what Eric Welch calls about addiction is voluntary slavery. Stealing, letting your heart be stolen by something and how we're complicit. Like it feels like we're a slave to it, but we also choose it. How are we with addiction matters? There's just so much in this commandment, it's hard to narrow it down. Think of Romans 13. It's a great passage. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Like you owe love. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So we, you see, we break this command not just by taking things from people that's theirs, but also by withholding things we're supposed to give them that we're not giving them. And think especially of just those relational duties we have. 
Like, do we fail to give time and energy and respect and love to the people who have a right to that from us? Well, think of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's always the best interpreter. We break the command when we fixate on earthly riches. So Jesus says in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's an application of the eighth commandment. And you notice Jesus doesn't rebuke our desire for treasure. God has made us glory seekers. It's just that we misplace that. What he rebukes us for is our short-sightedness, our selfishness, and our foolishness. Uh, Earthly treasure, Jesus says, can't satisfy you. You keep getting it wrong. And you can't take it with you. Don't bank your existence on that. But in the midst of all that, what he's really telling them is don't get confused. I am your treasure. My kingdom is your treasure. That grows out of the eighth commandment. And he wants to tell us that the money we invest for his kingdom, for eternal good of people, is the only money you're ever going to see in eternity. You won't see anything else. Lay it up, he says. What he's calling us to is to repent of root sins which undergird the Eighth Commandment, our self-centeredness, our greed, and our discontent. Well, then the prophet Malachi rebukes Israel in a real piercing way. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you ask, how have we robbed you? Um, And he says, in your tithes and in your contributions. It goes with Jesus' statement. It's the idea that you're building your little kingdom. You're all civil in society. You're, You're good, but you're building your kingdom. You're not using your money for the needs of the world and the salvation of the world. It's just not hitting your radar. It's like Jesus in the parable of the talents in Luke 19. And what he he wants to tell us is don't hide your talents. Don't hide your treasures. Don't hide your time. Don't do it. So what does it foster? What does it foster? Well, it fosters a beautiful thing, and that is it fosters stewardship. That we are stewards. Whether you're five years old, whether you're... 50? Whether you're 80, you're a steward. Uh, And the minute I say the word steward, I can't help but think of the most distasteful character in the Lord of the Rings. If you recall, Lord Denethor. And he's just an awful character because he has this wonderful role. He's the 26th steward of Gondor, the most important kingdom of men. And he's just supposed to protect the city, protect the kingdom, and guard the throne for the king to come. But then he hears that the king has arrived and he's full of suspicion and defensiveness. He doesn't want anything to do with it because he's all about himself and his own line. He doesn't want this new king to to take the throne from him. 
and he just about destroys the whole kingdom of Gondor. And I just think of myself, God has given us a beautiful role to be stewards, but sometimes I don't want the real king to get involved in my life. I want my little kingdom for me. And God's saying, you are a steward, and it's a mighty and important role under me. And we need to know that role more and more and just have it more in our, in our thinking processes. This means that though God gives you ownership, that he never gives you absolute ownership. It's not mine, really. God's the ultimate owner of everyone and everything. We get to use it and we get to enjoy it. We get to delight in it. And that's part of being a steward of it. Enjoy your family and your food and your good times. It's part of stewarding it. But at the same time, we always have a heart for God and His glory as our true treasure. And we always have a burden and a zeal that looks a little bit like God's. That we want to use what's entrusted to us for things that are on God's heart too meaning his saving, redeeming kingdom in this world. And so we look at being a steward and what's involved in that. You and I aim to be contented sheep of the good shepherd. And I love that phrase. It's David, and I imagine him to be a high schooler, high schoolers, out with his sheep, just him and the sheep. He's looking at how hard he's working, and then he looks at God and says, man, you do that for me. And young David molds this heart where he's a contented sheep of the good shepherd. And it's only when he gets there that God says, okay, you can be the shepherd king of Israel because your heart's in the right place. You can steward my people. To steal is to fail to trust God's provision for ourselves and to attack God's provision for someone else. We're discontented. But see, we as stewards have such a high view of God, His strength, His love, and His wisdom that we cultivate what one Puritan author called the rare view, jewel of Christian contentment. We aspire to what one writer called the high water mark in Paul's Christian experience, which is what of all the passages Paul's written? He thinks it's Philippians 4 when Paul says, For I learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. High watermark in Christian experience. May it be us. We rest in our good shepherd's management of our life, whether it's tough or whether it's a wonderful season. The Westminster Larger Catechism explains what's required in this command in a beautiful way. There's a phrase here. It says a lot, but there's a phrase here that says this. The command requires of us an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as ourselves. I think that's probably intentional. One, we're all about promoting wealth and flourishing and prosperity. We want that, especially for others. Isn't that strange? Uh, 
We want people to be cared for, to use their gifts, to be trained for good jobs, to find dignified work, to increase their economic standing. We're burdened for that in our local community. We think it through. We want that for ourselves. But you know what? We're also willing to sacrifice our agenda a bit to elevate someone else instead of ourselves. It's not so much a competition as it is a community. Tupelo should be better economically for the church. It means we work in order that we can be generous. Ephesians 4.28 is beautiful. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So you see the rule of positive and negative here. So, repenting and believing, putting off sin and putting on Christ in Ephesians 4 is quit stealing, work hard, and give it away. And that's obeying the Eighth Commandment. It means that we support the church with our time, our talents, and our treasures. You know, back to the parable of the talents. We don't hide it. We put it to use. Back to Romans 13. We give that love and that respect and that time and attentiveness and understanding and honor to the people in our homes, our spouses, our children, our church, our friends. Like we, we give to those that deserve that from us. And for our church, we have a heart for the kingdom of Christ, the extension of the gospel around the world. We care about famine in other parts of the world. We throw our money into it and our prayers into it. You know, Jesus gave us a job. Matthew 28, 19 says, go make disciples of all nations. You'll be stealing to go slack on the job that Jesus gave us to do as a people. Ultimately, that's what we're after. What is it for shadow? What is it for shadow? Think about it. Thou shalt not steal. Who does it look to? I mean, it looks to Christ. It ultimately speaks that Jesus is our true treasure, that God's given us, that we possess, that we promote, that we hold fast. He's our pearl of great price. Ultimately, that is our inheritance, who we possess. 2 Corinthians 8 9. We read it earlier. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That is the ultimate expression, expression of the eighth commandment. He had it all. He had the universe right here. He had all the glory of the Father, and He didn't clutch onto those rights, but let it go. Why? Because there was a bunch of poor people, you and me, who were enslaved to the devil and guilty in sin and doomed to hell. And He gave it all up and owned our standing for himself. And then as one of us, 
satisfied God's law perfectly in our behalf and offered himself up on the tree to take into himself all the punishment that we would ever deserve and then just give it to us as a gift. That is the ultimate obedience to the Eighth Commandment, and that's the gospel. He gives us heaven, our true treasure. So Colossians 2, 2, and 3 calls Jesus the mystery, saying in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all there. 1 Peter 1 says God ransomed us not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, immeasurably more valuable and costly than gold and silver. Jesus paid the debt of our thieving, robbing, sinful hearts. Because ultimately, what you and I want to rob as fallen people is God's glory itself. We want to edge God out and put ourselves right there squarely on the throne of the universe. And that's the inner drive of sinful man that leaks into all of our little relationships and things we do. And Jesus came down and says, I am glory himself, and I'm going to die for that despicable sin pattern of yours, and I'm going to cover it all, and I'm going to honor and glorify God as you were supposed to do, and I'm going to get a lot of joy doing that, and then I'm going to rise victorious at the cross, the resurrection, and I'm going to give you God himself. You know, not only that, I'm going to give you an abundant life, and I'm going to give you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and you're going to walk into it. And it's no accident that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. It's not just a detail. God could have done it a different way. He's right in the middle. And actually, there's three thieves. There's two that are dying for their own thievery, and there's one that's dying for our thievery of the worst kind. And Jesus looks at that repentant thief who all of a sudden comes alive to the beauty of Christ on a cross. And he says, today, you will be with me in paradise. On a cross. And essentially is saying what you went after in this world, robbing and thieving so that you could have paradise on earth, and it got you a cross. I'm going to give you as a gift that this world pales into comparison. I'm giving you glory, and you have a home in the new heavens and the new earth, simply because you put your faith in me at this moment in your life. And God is so gracious that when we do that, he goes ahead and gives us a down payment of heaven. He gives us the Holy Spirit, God himself, that lives in your hearts. It's actually money, heavenly money, that guarantees to you that you belong there. That's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus fulfills the eighth commandment for you and gives you true treasure. So do you possess these riches today? Have you received God's generous, gracious gift today? The gift the eighth commandment points to is Jesus your treasure. Amen. Let's stand.